hunt Alaska, you don't want to hunt anywhere else because it's unlike anything else. You walk up to the thing and you're like, holy crap, what am I supposed to do with this? And if you just kind of chip away at it one piece at a time, it's it's not too bad, but it is exhausting. He wasn't dying. He was just coming closer and closer and closer. So now I'm ranging him 300, 250, 225, and I'm starting to get nervous. I'm like, we got to do something now. It was, it was intense. I mean, I would still have like flashbacks and nightmares and my body would start shaking whenever I would see a picture of it. It's not for likes on social media. It's not for the fame. It's I need to know that I can face my fears because if I can overcome it, then I can overcome anything. Hey, everybody. This is Tana Grenda with Bristol Bay Fitness, and you are listening to The Wild Initiative. Put down your latte and pull on your boots. I've been blessed to harvest 22 of the 29 North American animals with my bow. My personal 24-hour record for death threats is 88. They will start putting two and two together and realize this is how you call bulls in. So when I go hunting now, that's the ethos I take with me. You know, whatever whatever this hunt is going to throw at you, you pull your big girl pants up and you get on with it. Giant bucks are freaking awesome. They're beautiful. But you know what? I would not trade this first buck for anything in the world. So I'm really, I'm a geek. Magicians and dragons and magic swords. <laughs> I shit you not, man. I'm the biggest dork in the gun business. I'm Freddie Arte, Hollywood Hunter. This is Aaron Snyder. Hey, this is Trevin Stoltzfus with Outback Outdoors. This is Rihanna Carey. Hi, this is John Sloan of the Interviews with the Haunting Masters. You're listening to The Wild Initiative. Hey, y'all, welcome to another episode of The Wild Initiative, brought to you as part of the Waypoint Outdoor Collective. Hunting boots are a critical component of any successful hunt. Whether walking a short distance to your blind or trudging miles through rugged terrain, your feet are carrying the load. Without the right boots, you could give up early and lose out on that trophy just over the ridge. At Midway USA, we make selecting boots for your next hunt easier. With just a few clicks of a mouse, you can decide on what's important, like waterproofing, insulation, size, width, and savings. For just about everything for shooting, hunting, and the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. All right, y'all. So hopping right into today's episode, I am on the line with Tana Grinda of Bristol Bay Fitness. Tana, thank you so much for taking the time to hop on and join me today. No problem. It is my pleasure. It's a nice sunny day and I'm stuck inside. So thanks for that. (laughs) (laughs) It is actually a perfect day outside right now. And, uh, you know, I've had to close all the windows because got to make sure, you know, sound is 
I'm not getting the little kids across the street screaming and yeah. and all of that. So <laughs> like but, guarantee that you won't get my kids screaming, but <laughs> yeah, you know, hey, as long as it's only on one side, we're fine. We're fine. Yeah. <laughs> um, so one thing I always like to start out with is just maybe a little introduction of of who you are, but but also really how did you get introduced to the outdoors? What was your introduction to hunting and all of that? Yeah. So my name's Tana. I grew up in Idaho, actually in Northern Idaho, pretty close to the Canadian and Montana border, kind of right up in that corner in Moye Springs area. And I grew up with three brothers and my parents both hunted quite a bit. My dad was a logger and they hunted a lot. And so me being the only girl with three boys, I was drug along in the woods with them from the time <laughs> I was little. And I remember when I was really little, I was kind of scared of guns, not scared of them, but just scared of the sound and the recoil and stuff. So I just remember being a little timid and shy when it came to that. But I was an October baby, so I was born during elk elk hunting season. (laughs) So, I mean, (laughs) what options do I have if I'm born during elk season and I'm with a bunch of boys? I was drug along for pretty much every pack out. I missed my birthday parties. I mean, it was just, that's how I grew up is being immersed in the outdoors in North Idaho with my brothers, with my family. And looking back, I wouldn't really change a thing. <laughs> it kind of shaped my life and how it is now. Well, and it's funny, you know, because I, I talk to a lot of people on here and I've, I've had a lot of incredible women on the podcast. And it's always a little bit of a different story because so often some of them will be like, Oh yeah, you know, I grew up and my dad and all my brothers hunted, but I wasn't allowed to go with them. And it's it's interesting hearing like that different perspective because so often it's like, oh, I was a girl, I wasn't allowed to go, I had to stay home until I was older. Yeah. And then on the other side of the spectrum, it's like, I was a girl and I had no choice but to go. <laughs> <laughs> I had no choice. And my mom hunted too, you know, she also grew up in that area and so she would hunt as well. So it was very much encouraged to be outside and there was nothing else that we really liked. It was like, my dad was a logger. So he worked seven days a week. And if he took any time off, it was for hunting. So if we ever wanted to be together as a family, we were hunting. We were not going on vacations. We were not going to theme parks. We weren't going to the mall. We were in the woods. We were hunting. And that was our whole upbringing was in the woods. So then what, what takes you from, uh, you know, hunting with your, with your brothers and your family now to you're living in Alaska, correct? Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of a crazy story. Actually. I, for some reason felt a pull to get my pilot's license in my teen years. And there was a scholarship at our local, um, just flight school there in Northern Idaho. And I applied for it. I'm like, sure, why not? This sounds fun. And so I got my pilot's license and my brother also did it with me at the same time. Cause he's like, Oh, she can't get it without me getting it. So we both (laughs) did it. And that aviation pole, like I just fell in love with aviation and that pole took me to Alaska. So I went um, to college in Anchorage and I got my degree in air traffic control. And then I was going to be a pilot and I was going to do all this stuff aviation related And the moment that I like stepped foot in Alaska, I was like, this is home. You know, I, 
I had been different places and I had transferred to a couple different colleges. And as soon as I stepped foot in Alaska, I was like, this is where I'm supposed to be. This is where I should have been born here. Like, why was I born in Idaho? And I love Idaho, but something about Alaska just drew me to it. So I went to college there. And then my first year as a resident, I drew one of the most prestigious sheep hunts in Alaska. And so I brought my brothers up and I brought my dad up and we did a full family sheep hunt in Alaska together. And after that first hunt, it was all over for me. I'm like, never leaving. (laughs) (laughs) I'm in Alaska forever. And I did not stay in Alaska. Actually, I graduated and I went back to Idaho because I just, I was kind of in limbo between college and work and not knowing what to do with my life. And I met my future husband in Idaho who was a pilot in Bush, Alaska. And so we met, we got married pretty quickly, like less than a year. And we moved to Alaska and we did it seasonally for a bit. So we would come up for like summers and he would fly out in Southwestern Alaska for a fishing lodge. And then we'd go work in North Dakota and then we'd hunt all over Idaho. So we weren't actually residents in Alaska until about four or five years ago when we moved up here permanently. But yeah, it was like aviation that drew me here. And then I met my husband, he was a pilot out here. And both of us were just like, we love Alaska. We love hunting. We love flying. This is where we need to be. And that's how we ended up here. That is, that is absolutely wild. It's just like such a funny coincidence that he happened to be a pilot from Alaska. You guys met down in Idaho and, you know, and I I always tell people that the one place, the one and only place that might ever be able to steal me away from Montana if yeah. I was to move anywhere, it would be Alaska. And just probably that solely for the fact it's one of the few places where you can get even more remote. Oh, yeah. <laughs> than- like it really is the last frontier. And it's really hard after you hunt Alaska, you don't want to hunt anywhere else. After you fish in Alaska, you don't want to fish anywhere else. After you fly in Alaska, you don't want to fly anywhere else because it's unlike anything else. Like you can go to Montana and there's great big elk, right? And that's great. And we don't have that here. That's the one thing we don't have but we have gigantic moose, you know? (laughs) And so it's like, everything's bigger. Everything's more remote. There's less people. And so if you don't like people, Alaska is the place to be. (laughs) And uh, We live pretty remote. We live off the road system and we love it. So it's just great. So talking about those big moose, uh, I've been, uh, I've been looking at your, I've been watching your Instagram and I've been, been seeing these hunts. I've been seeing a lot of, a lot of moose, mooses, posted <laughs> I, I nearly said mooses but i think i caught myself first mises <laughs> the plural of moose uh, <laughs> um so and now i saw the last post have you have you is that a recent moose or is that an older picture no i just shot that i just okay, shot that, that is that the one that is again. the one you just shot mm-hmm. congratulations so so tell us a little bit about that hunt Um, yeah. So kind of backing up a little bit, I did a caribou hunt solo a month ago and I shot a huge caribou. It was like one of my biggest caribou I've ever shot. I did it solo and I was so close with the bow. I was like 37 yards from this thing. I just couldn't seal the deal on it. And if you want me to go that story later, I can. (laughs) But after that hunt, I was like, man, what is wrong with me? Like I can't kill anything with a bow because I always bring a rifle. In Alaska, we don't have just archery seasons or just rifle. You can do either. You can use any weapon. And so I always bring a rifle, usually for bears in case that happens. But it's really, really hard to hold out for a bow when you have a rifle. So (laughs) 
after my caribou hunt a month ago, I was pretty determined and I've been trying to get a, a moose with my bow ever since I moved up here. So four years and I've killed a few with the rifle, but just haven't done it with the bow yet. And last year, my brother did it with a bow. And so it kind of inspired me to like, okay, he did it. I could do it. So every day for the last, I don't know, however many days since my caribou hunt, the end of August, I just, I woke up every morning and I said, I kill a record book moose with my bow. And I said it every single day. And I'm like, this might happen in five years, might happen in a month. I don't know. I'm just going to say it every day until I believe it. And it happens. And so I said that every single day. And I was planning on going out with a buddy. Well, my buddy ended up getting COVID and had to stay home. And so my husband got a three-day weekend and we had a break in weather and we had the worst weather we've had like in a long time when it's foggy and rainy and windy for a month prior to this. Like after my caribou hunt, we just had the crappiest weather, didn't really have any windows to go out and hunt. And we just happened to have a three-day weekend with perfect weather and my husband had it off and my buddy had COVID. So I'm like, let's go, let's just go do it. So it was a very last minute. I packed up my stuff within about an hour and we left in the airplane, we took off. And so we get into moose camp and it's just beautiful, but it's blowing. I mean, it's, it's gusting probably 25, 30. Um, it's dang cold. It's probably 30 to 40 wind chill. And I brought all my winter stuff and my husband was making fun of me. He's like, why are you bringing all this winter stuff? It's September. I'm like, it's, do you feel how cold it is? Like, it's going to be <laughs> cold. And, um, and then he was cold and was mad. He didn't bring his winter stuff. So anyway, I'm like hunting in, in all my winter clothes and we can't fly same day airborne. Obviously that's pretty illegal to like go fly and land and shoot. So you have to always camp. So we go out there, we camp that night, we wake up the next morning, it's 32 degrees <laughs> and there's frost on the ground. and first thing I roll out of bed and I get out of the tent. <laughs> I don't even have my stuff on. My bag is packed. I don't have anything for the day. And I pull up my binos and there's two bulls within 300 yards of our camp. And I'm just like, honey, let's go. <laughs> bulls right there. And they were small er, and I was holding out for a bigger one. There was like a really small bowling goal. And then one that was probably like mid fifties ish and, and 50 is a legal bowl. So 50 and above. And so I know he's at least legal, um, but I'm like, I don't want to tag out first thing. You know, I like to hunt a little bit. So I'm watching these two bulls within 300 yards of camp. It's so tempting, so tempting just to pick up the rifle and shoot a big bull moose right next to our little runway. Really easy pack, you know, and then we're done. <laughs> but um, we just waited there for a minute and watched them. And then this bigger bull comes running down the hill with two cows. And we're like, oh, oh, he's nice. And so I'm like, I got to get my bow. So I run back and I get my bow. I literally have nothing set up. I don't have my GoPro because we film everything. So I'm trying to get everything scrambled and ready. And I don't have much cover. We're kind of in the open. There's one little rock I can hide behind. So I hide behind that rock. I've got an arrow knocked and my husband gets behind me and he starts to call. Well, moose all do the same thing as elk. You know, they get to 80 to 100 yards and they start circling downwind to see what they're hearing. And that's what this bull did. And we just happened to be too close to camp. So I think he saw the airplane, but he came in within 80 yards. I had an arrow knocked. He was coming straight on and I had a direct crosswind of that 25 gust, which is just a lot for, for 80 yards. So I was waiting. I was like, if he comes by, I'm going to shoot him right here on the road. <laughs> but it didn't work out. I think he saw the airplane. He didn't smell us. He must've seen something that he didn't like and just took off running. But that was cool. You know, we rolled out of bed and there was, 
three bulls there with a couple mm-hmm. cows right next to camp and they were going wild. You know, they were trying to fight each other and it, it was just a lot of fun. So we were just fully in the, the moose paradise. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so in this particular spot, we like to, you know, have less than a mile pack for a moose because moose quarters are over a hundred pounds. So you don't want to do like a sheep hunt where you're hiking in 20 miles. We want to be close within a mile um, to have a, a shorter pack. But where we were at, my husband could land a lot of different spots because we have a super cub and there was a lot of like nice hard ridges and things he could land on. So he was like, you got this whole drainage. You can hike as far as you want that way. And as far as you want this way, I can land in all these areas and probably get within a mile of a moose if you shoot one. So I'm like, sweet. And you because usually we're sitting like a bear hunt, just glassing and glassing and glassing and waiting for something. But here we could actually hike and hunt, mm-hmm. which was really cool. So we were hiking down this ridge and I wasn't seeing much close. Like we'd see a couple small bulls, like maybe 30 inches, smaller ones. We saw a few cows. I was looking way across the river at a nice bull that I thought about going after, but it was like four miles away and we had to wade a river like up to my chest. And I did bring my chest waders, but I'm like, Ugh, it'd be really nice just find one on the side of the river. And so we just kept hiking and taking our time. And he said, it was super windy, stormy, a bunch of squalls were moving through. So we were just kind of taking our time all that morning, ate some lunch. So we're getting kind of close to the afternoon and we see a really nice bull three miles away across the river as usual, really far through alders. Just it's going to be a sucky hike. (laughs) And my husband's like, okay, you think you can do it? I said, yeah, sure. So we start hiking and within five minutes, he's like big bull. And he gets down. I'm like, what? where? And I, I kind of peek up over the tundra and there's a nice bull 600 yards away, walking right at us. I'm like, no freaking way. You know, I'm just sitting there like, sweet. I don't have to cross the river. So. <laughs> he's a, uh, He's trying to hand me the rifle at this point because I could get set up on the rifle. We have a long range gun. I shoot out to 800 all the time and I could easily get within 300 yards of this thing and, and dump him with a rifle. And I'm like, just give me a chance with the bow. I just, I just want a chance. And he's like, okay, it's really hard for him to <laughs> be patient. So um, he takes the gun. I was like, just, just stay right here, stay right here and call and I'm going to move in. So I grab my bow, I get the whole camera set up and I just start running in towards him. And he was kind of weaving in and out of these big alder patches. So I had that chance for him to be hidden enough for me to just run and sprint. Mm -hmm. So I would sprint in, sprint, and I got within a couple hundred yards of him and then he just held up. And I was in a spot where I had to cross this little creek canyon to get to him. And I needed to make that decision of if I cross this creek canyon, I'm out of view for him for at least five minutes. And if he's going to be coming my way toward Adam's call, I'm going to miss him. So mm-hmm. I waited there for a good 10 minutes, just waiting to see if he was going to come close that distance and walk by me toward Adam where he was cow calling. And he didn't. He was just held up in the alders and he was just staying there and wouldn't move. He wouldn't move anywhere else. He was just looking, you know, he just wouldn't come any further. So I kind of pointed at my husband, I'm like, I'm going to go. And I just crossed that creek canyon as fast as I could. And the wind was howling. So I was like, I don't need to be quiet. I'm just going to crash through this brush. And it was thick alders and I had crossed a little creek and it was just loud. So I'm just crashing through this brush, through this little canyon. I get up on the other side and I look up the ridge and the bull just comes out of the alders and starts running downhill at me. And I think he heard me 
because mm-hmm. they'll hear like, if you're in their territory in the rut, they think you're a bull and they're going to come fight you. So I'm like, Oh crap, he's coming to fight me. So I just kind of scramble to the closest little bush I can find, which isn't very big. If you look at my Instagram, you'll see it. And I was just hiding behind this bush and I'm looking through the bush, just seeing this huge animal barreling down the hill at me. But every time my husband would call, he'd stop. So that gave me a little bit of time to kind of calm my nerves, think about the situation a little (laughs) bit, try to get ready. And I was like, this might actually work. Like he is coming in. So I'm ranging him and I'm ranging all the bushes around me so that I know what yardage he's at when he walks by, whichever way he decides to walk by me. And, uh, most places I can see are within 50 yards. So I'm golden. It's super windy, but I'm golden with that. So he just keeps walking closer and closer and closer to me. And pretty soon I'm ranging him. It's like 30 yards, 25 yards. I'm like, <laughs> okay, 20 yard pit. Here we go. <laughs> Don't need to change anymore. <laughs> just put the whole housing on the side of him. <laughs> exactly. Just put all my pins on the body. <laughs> so he stops about 17 yards away and I'm behind the bush and he's just looking at my husband. He's not moving. And I'm trying to decide which way to go. But at this point, he's so dang close and I can see him through the brush. I'm like, I don't have much time before he busts me and he's gone. So I come to full draw and I just start sidestepping out from behind that bush to get in the open and get a good shot. And when he did that, I kind of had a really good quarter to me shot to where I could have put it right in the chest. Mm-hmm. That's what my brother did last year. He just put it right in the chest, right through the heart. He died within seconds. And that's what that's what my first shot was going to be. But he flinched. I think he saw me move from behind that bush and he flinched. And he turned the other way, almost broadside. And so I'm like, well, that's my shot. And it was just quick, instinctive. I took two steps back as soon as I could see his body, pretty much all pins on the body and shot. And uh, if you've ever seen a moose shoulder, they're really, really big. I was very just hesitant of hitting the shoulder. And, uh, so I, I saw my arrow hit and he took off running and I was like, great hit. I saw the knock. I saw the fletchings. I thought it was an awesome shot. And turns out he was quartered to me a lot more than I thought he was. So I thought I hit about six inches behind the shoulder. I hit about 12. And so when that happened is angled, it went, you know, into the vital or into the chest cavity, but angled back into the guts and I was like, oh, crap. So he he runs and he stops at 60 yards. I miss range at the bushes in front of him. Oh. 50. <laughs> I shot again at 50 and shot under him. I was like, ah, oh my gosh, why didn't I hit him? And I rearranged. I'm like, oh, shoot. It was 60, not 50, because there were bushes in front of him just blowing back and forth in the wind. Mm-hmm. So it was just one of those situations that went total chaos. But even looking at his hit there, I'm like, oh, fatal hit. Like really, really good hit but he wasn't going down. He just kept running away. And I'm like, what the heck? Why isn't he going down? So I figured I hit lungs and, or even one lung and he was going to go a little ways. So I backed out, went to my husband. We reviewed the footage. We're like, yep, really good shot. Wouldn't have done anything differently. It looks good. But by that time it was like evening. So we're like, let's give him the night. Um, last thing you want to do is bump, (laughs) bump a bull before you know they're dead. So we just backed out, went back to camp. I was pretty, nervous. I was pretty nervous. I was pretty stressed out. Um, didn't sleep much. I was sick to my stomach. I just like to see animals go down quickly and I shoot a lot with a rifle. So I'm not used to them running away (laughs) 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 to be honest. So, um, the next morning was 24 degrees. It was real cold. Everything was frosted over. 
And so we're like, crap, we don't know if we're going to find a blood trail or what we're going to find, but we should be able to at least find his beds. And we had seen before we went back to camp, we saw where he was bedded. He was bedded. He hadn't moved. We knew he was going to die there. Um, so we went straight to where he was bedded the next morning. He was gone. We're like, like, this is not good. This is not good. Couldn't find blood. Couldn't find hair. He was in thick willow brush, thick trees, thick alders. Um, so we hiked around for hours, man. Like we just, it was one of those things where you just feel sick to your stomach the entire time mm-hmm. because you just didn't get an animal down right away and you didn't find it right away. And I knew it was cold enough. So I'm like, I don't think the meat's going to go bad if he's dead, but we didn't bump anything. So we knew he was potentially dead. We just couldn't find him. So we hiked around for, I kid you not, six hours, six hours of gritting that area and gritting the trees and gritting the alders and gritting the the brush. And finally, we're just like, you know what? We have an airplane. We're going to use it. So we hiked all the way back to the airplane, which is a couple miles from where this happened. And uh, we got in the airplane. We started circling and we couldn't find him. We're just circling circle and circle and circle. And I'm getting sick. I'm going to throw up. I'm getting nauseous. And uh, I was like, we just need to take a break for a second. So we land, we kind of reset and we're like, okay, the only place we can't see from the airplane right now is the really, really thick alders. So we're just going to have to grid those for the rest of the day. Hope we find him. We didn't see him alive. So that's a good sign, but we couldn't find him dead either. So we got back in the airplane said a good prayer, got back in the airplane within one pass. I look down and we look into the trees, the thick trees that we circled, I swear, like a hundred times. And I see a Luminox sticking up and I'm like, (gasps) (laughs) (laughs) so it was just, it was really stressful. It was a stressful day and night of just trying to find this bull where he was. And the killer thing about this is he was 20 yards, 20 yards from where we walked that morning, six hours. So it was just one of those things that you just walk by and you walk by him and you walk by him. And until you stumble on him, because the brush is over your head, you just don't see him. And so we were just so thankful. I mean, I'll fully admit it wasn't a perfect shot. It did, did angle back into the guts. He was quartered to me a lot more than I thought. I had the wind. Everything was kind of just crappy (laughs) you know but um at 15 yards like I couldn't really ask for a closer shot than that and so I just kind of have to accept it and just say like I just hope he didn't suffer for long and I'm really really glad that we found him and it was my first boat kill with a moose boat trader America's largest boating marketplace offering easy financing and over 100,000 boat listings to choose from Sell, find, and finance new or used boats on America's largest boating marketplace. Visit BoatTrader.com to get started. That's incredible. And I think that's such an important lesson for, I mean, I was going to say new hunters, but I think a good reminder for everyone is, you know, so often it's it's so easy to give up when it comes to looking or searching. Um, you know, some people... Some people just nosh their tag and say, oh, I'm never going to find it and right. and head home. Other people will be like, well, I can't find it, so I'm going to keep hunting. Um, yep. And I think, you know, you've got to you've really got to put in that time. And it's like, OK, you know, the age old question. Uh, OK, how long do you look for an animal, uh, you know, that it's you're pretty sure you would? <laughs> yeah, it's, you know, and I mean, and I get it. There's there's been times like I spent. I spent like a whole 
day looking for a hog one time that I, I know I just buried an arrow through and it just did not leave. It left two drops of blood and that's all we ever saw of the dang thing. And we gritted for hours because it was going to be my, it was going to be my first bow kill yeah, or my first kill period. Oh shoot. And, uh, we, we never found it. And, but I think, you know, it's, it's hard to just say, okay, use your best judgment because how many people have, do we know that have really good judgment? (laughs) But yeah, yeah, it's pretty much, you know, you look for it until you find it until you are absolutely sure that that thing is alive, (laughs) either alive or you have found it. I mean, it's what it comes down to. You have to, and, and so much of that is, I mean, even for me, like it's not even just for the animal and the ethics of it. It's for me. So I'd be able to sleep at night. Yeah. I think people think we're, we're heartless, you know, and, Oh, you just wound an animal or whatever. And it's not a big deal, but we feel it more than anybody. You know, the last thing that we want is an animal to suffer longer than it needs to. The last thing we want is to wound an animal and not find it. Um, like we practice all year for that. And it happens like nobody is perfect. Nobody's going to get a perfect shot every time. I know archers that have killed hundreds of animals with their bow and still wound animals and don't find it. And yeah, in this situation, I knew I looked at the shot. I'm like, that is a fatal hit. Like, I know I did damage to that thing. He's going to die. I just don't know where, (laughs) (laughs) And uh, you know, if I would have hit like back strap or the front shoulder or something, I would have known, Oh, he's probably going to live. And if I found him alive in the airplane, I'd be like, okay, good. At least I know he's alive and he's fine. And, um, he's not suffering, but like in this case he was suffering. I saw it where he bedded and he didn't move. And so it's like, man, he just moved 40 yards from that. Like, I don't know how we didn't see him. We had gritted it. He had moved 40 yards from that bed that we wow. went to that day. He just, he barely moved. Um, and thankfully we just had the airplane and I was this close to giving up. I was so close. I was just going to tell Adam, like, take me home. I don't deserve to hunt anymore. I'm going to hang up the bow. Like I was just sick to my stomach. I didn't sleep that night. You know, it's just, you feel it as a hunter when you make a mistake or it's not perfect. And uh, we know more than anybody. We don't need people to tell us that we're pieces of crap. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, trust me. No one can make me feel more like garbage than myself. (laughs) (laughs) At least that's how I am. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, it was just it was a big blessing. And and uh, yeah, it was it was a surreal experience. The whole sucky part of it, of, of just feeling bad and um being depressed and not knowing where he was at you know that kind of all dissipated once we found him because I knew that okay he's dead and his meat was actually good I mean it was so cold that night I think it that helped and nothing spoiled so I was super thankful for that too I was really worried about that so then what's what's the the quartering and pack out process you know I mean an elk like you were saying an elk's bad enough. <laughs> hey, you know, <laughs> yeah. you're, you know, you're loading elk quarters on with all your gear. That's, that's a bad enough pack out, but uh, with a moose, I mean, just exponentially more. And what, what was that pack out like? Yeah. So just to give you a perspective of a moose and I put some pictures on my social media, you can see, but they can be over 1500 pounds and they can be 10 feet tall, like a mature male. It's like, I think the height of a, basketball rim or something i mean mm-hmm. they're big animals you see them next to a car in anchorage and you're like holy crap those things are like an elephant <laughs> um so if you think of that 
they're just very huge animals. And it took us about, we've done several moose and it took us quick, the two of us, three and a half hours to cut him up and get all the quarters and everything. Um, Mm -hmm. And we just do one side at a time. We don't gut them. We just kind of, you know, take the quarters off and take all the meat off, flip them and do it again, keep the organs that we want to and uh, cut the whole rib rack because we have to keep the bone in on moose in this area. So you you can't debone. You have to keep the quarters. So just to give you a little idea, a rear quarter can be anywhere from 120 to 135 pounds on the scale. Yeesh. A front anywhere from like a hundred to hundred fifteen. So, I mean, I'm looking at over a hundred every quarter. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm looking at this picture you've got here on your Instagram, and I'm I'm just going to assume that's a rear quarter. It could very easily be a front quarter, that's a front. but that's a, that's a that's one of the front quarters. Dear heavens, because that I mean that <laughs> looks like it's about as tall as you are. It is. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like I'm looking at the comparison. I'm like, damn. And that's a front quarter. Yeah. Holy moly. Yeah. Um, I'm five, five. That's a front. So. <laughs> that is, that is incredible. That is absolutely incredible. Yeah. I guess. And it's just that age old story of like, yeah, moose hunting sounds really great until you actually get one down. <laughs> yeah. My husband explains it's like long division. Anytime that you, you get a moose down, you just have to chip away at it one piece at a time because it can be really overwhelming. You walk up to the thing and you're like, holy crap, what am I supposed to do with this? And if you just kind of chip away at it one piece at a time, it's, it's not too bad, but it is exhausting. You know, you're cutting for three and a half to four hours solid, and then you're lifting the quarters and hanging them usually in trees, what we do to really keep them cool or putting them up in an alder bush. So they have airflow on both sides. And then you have the worry with bears up there. So Mm -hmm. you want to make sure that hopefully bears don't come into it or you can kind of cover it with some brush. So if a bear wants it, it's going to get it. So it just takes a lot. And in the neck meat alone, <laughs> the neck meat alone is a hundred pounds, 50 oh pounds per side. So just the neck is a hundred. And then you've got the ribs, which you take the whole rack with the bone in, you know? So with the trips, it is eight trips with the head. If you take the hide and you want to mount it, it's at least nine to 10. Jeez. So with two of us, it takes four to five trips to get a and, moose up. And so how close were you able to get the, because uh, you guys moved the plane in closer, I'm assuming. Yep. Uh, yeah. The closest he could get was a half mile. Usually I can find a spot that's like within a couple hundred yards and we just couldn't. We were in the nastiest spot on the mountain. <laughs> so the closest we could get, it was a half mile. It wasn't even a great spot. It was an uphill tundra spot that was really bumpy it it was not an ideal spot, but my husband's really great pilot and he was able to operate out of there um, and shuttle. So he had to shuttle. He did four to five shuttles out of that spot, like one to two quarters at a time. You just have to okay. stay super light when you're in a spot. So yeah, we were half mile away. Um, we were able to cut up the whole thing because we found it at like 3 p.m. We were able to cut up the whole thing and then pack half of it out to that spot where the plane was before dark. And we had to fly back to camp, sleep there fly back the next morning, pack the rest of it out, then shuttle four to five trips to a bigger strip, then take all the meat there, shuttle it to another guy who's going to help us fly it out because we can't fit it all on (laughs) an airplane and then fly it all home. So you touch the piece like 
you know, 10 times by the time you put it in a tree, then put it in a pack and take it out of the pack, put it in the plane. (laughs) It's a lot of work. It takes two to three days to get a moose out once you shoot one where we're at. (laughs) And so, so up in Alaska, you mentioned that you have to keep the bone in, you can't debone the meat. Um, What, what are, what are the requirements? What all do you have to take up there? Yes. It varies state by state. Yeah. So, and it depends on the unit here as well, but most places you need a bull 50 or bigger or have a certain number of brows. And then you have to take the quarters bone in. I think there's a couple units that you don't have to do that, but not here. And I honestly like having the meat on the quarters. It's easier to carry that way. It distributes the weight on your back a lot better. Um, Cause I can carry a front and a rear. It's, it's heavy, but I can do it better than like a hundred pounds of debone meat. You know, it just feels better. So, um, you take the quarters, you got to take the ribs. The biggest thing with any animal up here is you do not want to get the want waste ticket. So if you have, if you leave a softball size of meat, you'll get a ticket. So you take all the neck, all the ribs. Um, I like to take the heart. Some people like to take the liver. I don't like the liver. You want my liver? I'll bring it to you. (laughs) (laughs) Um, but yeah, we take pretty much everything. So all that's left is just the spine. We take front and back tenderloins. So just the spine is left and guts, basically. Okay. Is it anything that's it. And the hide. You don't have to take the hide. Um, but it's like, it's a, it's probably 200 pounds, the hide is. So I don't even know how you'd pack it out, to be honest. Oh, wow. That's, you just drag it. <laughs> Both of you. <laughs> um, yeah. If you want to see the brush we go through, I don't think you could drag it. <laughs> yeah, good point. Good point. But if people do mount it, you know, they'll do a shoulder mount usually. Um, and, and half of it is probably a hundred to 130 pounds or something. I was going to say, yeah, it gives you a new respect when you see a full body moose mount somewhere. <laughs> must've been able to take a truck to it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that must've been a lot closer of a deal. But I think that's, some, that's something that, people are not always used to doing in a lot of states is taking that rib meat taking and you know if they do take the rib meat usually they're just scraping it off the bones whatever a little bit and um and then that neck meat i don't think a lot of i think a lot of people just forgo that neck meat and get what they you know kind of take what they can with the quarters take what they can with the back straps and and then leave the rest there and that's actually become one of my favorite, um, you know, when I'm hunting something smaller, um, I'll just take that entire neck roast as, as yeah. one piece and mm-hmm. you leave everything in. I'll throw it in a crock pot and then pick out the <laughs> esophagus and, and bones yeah. later. And that's one of my absolute favorites. Cause there, and I'm amazed at how much meat just off of a little, Hot. little teeny white tail you can get, let alone you know, a hundred pounds from a moose. Yep. It's literally a hundred pounds on the neck. And yeah, I, I can't remember in Idaho what we did, but even deer and stuff. Yeah. Like it's not required, right? Like not everybody takes the neck meat, but here, if you leave a softball size of meat, you are getting a ticket and you could get your rack taken too. Oh, that's they're, I mean, they're super strict about it. And I know why, like it's, it's important. Yeah. I was going to say, Oh, that's crazy. But it, it's, I mean, I, I, love it like i i like that they require that and um you know i i've recently uh i recently saw you know there's a lot of discussion here in montana about uh the same kind of thing wanton waste with waterfowl and whether um and i i I gotta check the regulations see if they're the same but talks about you know most people just debreast their ducks and 
toss the rest. And I think with goo with geese, you have to uh, you have to actually take the the legs and thighs as well. I think it's okay. a waterfowl of a certain size. But I was just I was just kind of in a watching a discussion on quote unquote discussion. It was a <laughs> Because we all know those kind of discussions are perfectly <laughs> rational and uh, absolutely no out, feelings but, hurt whatsoever. <laughs> oh, yeah. It was just a, a bunch of people really butt hurt over it, and oh, you're stupid if you think this. And mm-hmm. uh, then I had another buddy, a buddy, a chef, who's like, "Are you kidding me?" And he's like posting pictures of his recipes, and <laughs> like, <laughs> he's like, "I'm not even going to jump in this one." But yeah. Um, <laughs> So what's the what's the uh, bear activity like up where of where you were hunting? Was that was that a concern in the spot you were at? Yeah, um, there was a bear on another carcass that week before, and there was a ton of bears up there actually a couple weeks prior to that. It's kind of interesting because it depends on the year and what the weather is, but the bears will mostly out here because they're salmon bears stay on the salmon streams eat all the, you know, spawned out salmon. And then about August, they go up into the high country and fill up on berries. And then when those berries are done and it's frosted, they usually come back down again to the rest of the salmon and uh, feed on that until they hibernate. So in this case, it was kind of late. They were up in the berries in September and then um, they just kind of disappeared a couple days before I got there because my husband had been hunting it a, a couple weeks prior to that. And they just kind of disappeared. And I think it's just because it got cold and it frosted a little bit. And maybe the berries were just kind of mushy then. And so their berry season was over and they went back down low again. So I only saw one bear the whole time we were there. And the week prior to that, my husband saw like 20. So it really depends on the time of year, what the berries are like. Um, but yeah, usually they'll fill up on the berries before they kind of finish off on the salmon for hibernation <laughs> here. The 1911 is one of the most iconic firearms in history. Designed by John Browning, the 1911 was the standard-issue sidearm of the U.S. military from 1911 to 1985. While Colt produced the original, almost every major firearm company has produced its own version. It's wildly revered for its reliability, crisp trigger, and is still a favorite for all types of shooters. Whether you're looking to buy or build a 1911 and just about everything for guns, log on to MidwayUSA.com. So... You also just uh, fairly recently had a pretty successful bear hunt as well, didn't you? Define successful. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, I guided my brother it, on a bear hunt. Yeah. I was going to say it was an adventure. <laughs> yeah, it was an experience for sure. As they all are. Didn't go as planned, but we so lived. T- <laughs> <laughs> well i would i would love to hear a little bit about that bear hunt as well because that is so i've got to say my one dream when i first started getting interested in hunting i remember looking around and and looking at all the regulations in in california when i was living back there and uh, i saw there was an archery bear season and and at that point to me i was like holy crap that's like the pinnacle of anything shooting a bear with a bow that's crazy to me and that's one of the things that kind of got me obsessed with hunting was the idea of bear hunting and you know that was also before i i I knew most black bears were the size of a large labrador but um (laughs) like because you know in my mind all i think of are you know giant grizzly bears and um and but i i love i i honestly think probably i'm obsessed with elk but bear hunting stories are probably 
my absolute favorite like good bad or ugly like i just i'm obsessed and i cannot get enough of bear hunting stories but i would love to hear if you're willing to share uh yeah. about a little bit about that bear bear story yeah so just to give people a little perspective we live close to the alaska peninsula and that's where we hunt and that's the main spot where everybody all over the world comes to hunt it's either the peninsula or kodiak and they're alaska browns and there's some of the biggest bears in the world so a good trophy, you know, big bear is 10 feet, nine to 10 feet. So I actually shot a brown bear with my bow two years ago. It was my first brown bear hunt. And I, I was the same, th- same thing. Like, oh, if I could do that with a bow, I would be so awesome. And I would overcome my fear. I mean, that's really why I did it is I'm, I'm kind of terrified of bears. I had a lot of grizzly encounters when I lived in Idaho, elk hunting. Um, I've been false charged by them a couple times in Idaho. And so I kind of have this fear of of staying in a tent and up here, I need to overcome that because I have to be in a tent every time I hunt. Mm -hmm. So I figured if I could sneak in stalking on a brown bear with my bow and shoot one with a bow, then I'm the ultimate predator and I don't need to be scared of them anymore. So (laughs) people think that's, (laughs) that's really, that's really how my brain works. So I, and I love bear hunting and predator hunting. There's obviously the, the conservation reasons behind it and stuff. It's not just for me being selfish okay for all you haters out there (laughs) (laughs) i uh i did this bear hunt with my husband a couple years ago and i did it i stalked in it was a eight and a half foot sow um i got within 50 yards of her i shot her with my bow and it was the craziest thing ever really crazy adrenaline rush really awesome so i'm like sweet i don't need to be afraid of him anymore and i wasn't for about two years (laughs) and then um this spring my because where we're at you can only hunt one bear every four years whether you're a resident or a non-resident so if you get a bear i can't hunt again for four more seasons of that bear season so i'm tagged out my husband's tagged out and you do need a guide if you're a non-resident but if you have a next of kin relative that's an alaska resident Mm -hmm. you can go with Mm -hmm. them and they can act as your guide so my brother used me as his guide to come up here from idaho and do his brown bear hunt you know So um, we went out together. It was this May. We had a super late winter. So none of the bears had come out of their dens yet. Hardly. We weren't seeing a lot of tracks. And we were in this spot where the only bears we were seeing were up in the snow. And he was doing archery too. Same thing. Like, oh, Tana did it with a bow. I could do it with a bow. (laughs) (laughs) He brought his bow. We brought a rifle and we had a, a pistol. So we see this bear way, way up in the snow. He was super sleepy. He was sleeping. And that was our ideal situation. We went into this hunt of if we can find a bear sleeping, that's a perfect archery opportunity to sneak in and shoot him with a bow sleeping. So that was our ideal. Like that's how we're going to get close. We didn't think about the snow situation. So this thing was six miles as the crow flies up in the like cliffs, snow, snowy alpine like just way way far away and we had to you know navigate through a lot of creeks and streams and waterfalls and and alders and brush to get up there so it took us all day all day we left at six or seven in the morning didn't get up there until like three or four in the afternoon to the base of the hill and then Mm -hmm. he was at 2500 feet so we had to climb 2500 feet vert to get up to him and my brother, he does a lot of snowmobiling down there. He's really well-versed in the snow. He's, he's a split boarder. He does a lot of snow stuff. So he's very well-versed in avalanche danger and stuff. So I said, Trevor, is this, is this safe like to go up there in the snow? And he's like, oh yeah, you know, it's spring snow, but this is what we need to watch out for. We'll take this line. And we kind of just made our line up 
where we were going to go. So that's what we did. We climbed up there. As we were climbing up there, I started to get just a little anxious. And um, looking back, it was definitely anxiety and kind of a sign like something isn't right. But then I just thought it was kind of like buck fever. Like, oh, we're getting close to this bear. (laughs) This is exciting, but also terrifying. (laughs) So um, we climb up to this bear. And we knew at this point, like we're not dumb enough to sneak up on a bear in the snow because you don't have cover, but we're dumb enough to shoot on with a rifle when we don't have cover. (laughs) So (laughs) we got within (laughs) 500 yards of this thing and he's still sleeping. He's been sleeping for almost 24 hours. So he just came out of the den probably. And he's a big bear, big boar laying in the snow and we have got no trees. We're in the Alpine. It's like a couple of rocks here and there. The rest is just white blanket of snow. We've got the storm rolling in that night and it's just super eerie. It's like, this is nuts. Like what the heck are we doing up here? So he shoots this bear at 470. Normally with our gun, totally fine. Um, He shoots it three times, one straight through the lungs, one straight through the front shoulder and one like high neck spine. And those are all three really, really good hits for a bear. Mm-hmm. And the bear gets up and he looks pretty sick and he looks like he's going to go down and I'm sitting there videoing it and he doesn't. And we're kind of across from this thing and there's like this little dip in the snow, but we're really downhill from him. And mm-hmm. he starts sliding down on his belly toward us, which is super eerie because you see he's a uh... foot bear. He's coming down the snow, like sliding and their big bellies are like a sled and he's just sliding and he's closing the distance. And I'm like, shoot him again. And he goes to put in another round and the bolt jams. Oh no. So now we have a jammed rifle. We're trying to figure it out. We're messing with it. It's freezing up there. So we think it's frozen or we're blowing on it and the bear's coming closer. And we're just like, what the heck do we do? And we're starting to panic a little bit. So we can't get it unjammed. We just don't know what's going on, but the bolt will not close. So we now have a bow <laughs> and we have a 454 Casul pistol. And that's all we've got. So we were just going to wait. He's like, he's going to die. He got great shots. He's going to die. He's spewing blood out both sides, just making a blood trail coming down. We're like, yeah, he's going to die. No, he wasn't dying. He was just coming closer and closer and closer. So now I'm ranging him 300, 250, 225. And I'm starting to get nervous. I'm like, we got to do something now. And when you're in that situation, (laughs) a lot of people tell me like, I'm just going to sit there and fight. Okay. With where we were at, we were in this dip, right? So he would come up at us at 10 yards before we knew he was there. (laughs) So we had to get in an area, one, for cover because we're in the wide open. And two, to kind of see him a little ways so we knew he was coming. So we just took off running. We just left all our gear. We grabbed the weapons and we just started running for our lives down the hill. We've got knee-deep snow. If you can imagine trying to run Mm -hmm. for your life in knee-deep snow. So we're just running as fast as we can down the hill. I'm looking back behind me. I'm not seeing it. I'm just like, oh my gosh, I'm going to die. And uh, as we're running, my brother looks back and he's like, I lost the pistol. It fell out of the holster into the Uh... snow at the worst opportune moment. And so um, we just panic for a minute and look around, find the black handle sticking out of the snow. Thankfully, it could have like fallen deep Mm because there were holes in the snow there and that spring snow that's like wet and slushy. So we find the pistol and we keep running and there's tiny little outcropping of a couple like four foot rocks. And we just run behind that. And Trevor's like, he hands me the pistol. He's like, here you go. I'm like, what? No, you shot that thing. You're going to finish him off. I, 
I can't do it. Like I am in the flight <laughs> mode. I'm not in the fight mode right now. You have got to finish this. It's 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 <laughs> it's fight or flight, and I am clearly yeah. in flight mode at the moment. It's not, not fight and flight here. <laughs> it was horrifying. Um, so we knew the bow was was pointless. The rifle was still pointless. So we're just hiding behind the rock, and uh, we're we're just waiting. We don't see him, and we think that we have enough distance because we ran a couple hundred yards and we thought maybe that's enough time for him to just die. No. So I look up at the hill. He basically steps on our gear and that's when I saw him like crest the hill and he sees us. Uh, And it's just like this adrenaline hit. Like he was not even wounded. It just like it put this fire into him and he just came full bore. He's 150 yards away, full bore, close that distance in about 10 seconds. I was hiding behind the rock, like saying goodbye to my, saying goodbye to my kids, to my husband. I'm like, this is it. I was bracing for impact. I was going to get ripped apart by this thing. And, um, cause you, you see what it did with that rifle. We have a 338 ultra mag and you, and you have a little pistol here and you're like, this is supposed to save me. Yeah. Really? So my brother waits till he's like 30 yards coming right at my face and he puts one bullet out of the chamber it hits the rock in front of it ricochets off the rock he really focuses on the second one he gets the second one third hit fourth hit he's still coming full speed so this is all slow motion in my head but obviously it happened in about a second um so he got three bullets into this thing like great into the chest and the front shoulder and that fourth shot that he took just slowed him down enough to not come at me he was five yards from coming at me and tearing my throat apart five yards and that last shot just turned him enough that you could tell he was hurt and that's when i saw my instagram i actually had my camera on i had my phone on because i was filming the hunt and i just went like this with my phone i don't know why i'm just like maybe i need to film my death i don't know (laughs) i just went like this and so i got the last shot and he turned at about 10 yards and my brother put one more in the middle of the middle of the body and he just like hunched up and kind of disappeared behind this rock and it was a really steep hill right next to us. And I heard this like an avalanche. So I knew he had gone downhill of us, which is a good thing. I want to be uphill from this thing. Yeah. He's wounded. So we're now out of bullets. He's like, I got to reload. We have five more bullets left because we have a, you know, a revolver. And he's like, we got to run. So we kept running uphill because we knew he'd have a harder time getting uphill if he's pumping out blood. Mm-hmm. And we just start running uphill to the next rock outcropping. We never saw him. We didn't know if he was dead. He was probably coming back after us. It was horrifying. And then we just kind of laid in the rocks for a bit. Um, I was in the fetal position. <laughs> I was like, I'm going <laughs> to die. I'm going to die. I'm going to die. I'm not making off this mountain. You know, my mind just started playing all these tricks on me. But um, we just waited there for a bit and we didn't see any movement from him. We also couldn't see over that hill where he went. So he could have still been wounded. We didn't know. And uh, he makes fun of me because I actually left the bow and the rifle down where we were. He's like, oh, we have. I'm like, it was useless. The rifle was useless. The bow is useless. He's like, you could at least have some broadheads, like start stabbing or something. <laughs> like, no, nothing's going to work. I'm just going to die. It'll, it'll be fine. <laughs> so we just waited for a while. And the storm hit. It started blowing 40 to 50, like snowing, rain, freezing rain, everything you can imagine, like a monsoon hurricane. 
And so you're just cold. You're up in the snowy Alpine. It's like below zero. You're in your freaking hunting clothes and hunting mountain boots, you know, <laughs> just, just wet and soaked and cold. And we waited, I don't know, a good 30 to 40 minutes and then decided to slowly side hill back to our gear to see if we could get a better vantage point and see if he died. So we slowly did that. I was shaking. I could barely walk. I get back to our gear and you just see the bear's tracks and blood spewing like right next to my pack. Uh, (laughs) And we had a 360 GoPro set up on a selfie stick in the snow and it died right before the bear passed it. So uh, we, we didn't get that on video, but he literally stepped on our stuff, came right by us tracking us. And uh, so we're just looking at our stuff like, man, how are we even alive right now? where is he at? You know, we're just kind of looking, we still don't see him. And then we kind of get to a little better vantage point next to our gear. And we see a little black dot in the snow, like at the bottom of an avalanche slide. And my brother's like, is that him? And we both pull up our binos and sure enough, he's just there. And we think he's dead. He's not moving. He's at the bottom of the slide. And that's when I think we realized that we survived. Like it was that whole time from the time we shot him, to the time we saw him dead was an hour lapse. One hour. Jeez. One hour of like panic, fight or flight, like fighting for your life. It was awful. Literally <laughs> just this you telling me the story right now feels like longer than an hour. Like I'm like I'm, <laughs> I'm like all like curled up practically in the uh, fetal position right here now, just listening to the story. Damn. So it was it was insane. And it just took us some time to kind of process it. And uh, we slowly walked down to him. We kind of walked to where we shot him and where he had last stopped. And sure enough, five yards from my face um, was his last like lunge before he heard enough to turn. And so we had four bullets in him. He missed that first one. We had four, you know, 360 grain buffalo boars in him, which was enough to to kill him. Um, and yeah, we kind of hiked down to the avalanche. And, and the sketchy part about that spring snow is when you're close to these rocks, you know, there's air pockets underneath from mm-hmm. the melting. And so you'll just be walking along. And if you're close to rocky, fall through. And you don't know if it's a crevice. You don't know if it's a hole. Like, you don't know if it's 100 feet deep or five. And so it was kind of sketchy because as we were walking down to the bear, my brother fell in one uh, at like 50 uh. yards from the bear. And I'm just like, like, I hope he's dead. You know, like, hope I hope the bear's dead because if he's not, you're screwed because now yeah. you're stuck in a little hole and he, he climbed out of it. He knows how to get out of that stuff. So, yeah, it was just kind of crazy. We probably shouldn't have been up there in the snow. There's a lot of lessons that I learned from it, obviously. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> it was just, it was intense. We got up to the thing and we ended up measuring him later on. He was 10 foot, six inches. So 10 and a half foot bear, um, just a magnum huge animal <laughs> and that's that's 10 six from nose to tail so mm-hmm. when they're standing on their feet you know they're 12 or 13 yeah i mean like there's no you look at these pictures like there is no question that that is a big bear <laughs> like you know yeah. sometimes sometimes you kind of look at some of these pictures and you're like oh it's just how they took the picture like right <laughs> Yeah, there's no question. And then, yeah, and, and looking at this video, that is just holy moly! Like I can't even, I can't even imagine. And, and so I'll admit, I, I had heard some of this story. I, I had heard a little bit about it. And like, what an idiot! What but an idiot. no, what I heard, <laughs> all I heard about it was that you guys, you guys had killed this super gnarly 
uh, gnarly brown bear, you know, the 10 foot, 10 plus foot brown bear. Yeah. And, but it had, it had charged you and gotten really close. Like that's literally all I, all I heard <laughs> from the story. I'm like, Oh, that'll be a cool story. This one. I'm like, I feel like I need to go take a nap after listening to you. Tell me the story. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. It was, it was intense. I mean, it's been how many months, five months. Um, the first two months I would still have like flashbacks and nightmares and my body would start shaking whenever I would see a picture of it, you know, like your body remembers what happened, even though it's, you're not in danger anymore, your body still goes into fight or flight when you have those memories. And so it was just crazy. And, and that's why that, that caribou hunt was so special to me, not just because he was like a record caribou, but because I went by myself in the wilderness Mm -hmm. four months after that happened to me. And it was really mentally challenging. I mean, the physical part was fine. Like I'm, I know how to hunt. I can hunt a caribou by myself. It was like staying in a tent by myself, being in bear country by myself, being in a spot where I knew there were a lot of bears, you know, it was that, it was just the mental side of things that I was like, I got to overcome this or I'm never going to be able to hunt again. <laughs> and, and I look back and I'm like, why did I ever shoot one of these with my bow? That was the dumbest thing I've ever done. <laughs> um, and now I would never do it again. I would never hunt a brown bear with a bow again. I would never let my husband hunt a brown bear with a bow just because I experience if they see you and they don't die right away, you're dead. Mm-hmm. And so now it's like, I always carry a pistol on my chest because I felt so helpless not having a weapon. And people ask, why didn't you have a weapon? Well, I was tagged out. I asked the troopers before, can I, can I legally back him up? Because other guides can back their guys up and they can both shoot until mm-hmm. the bear goes down. Can I legally back him up? And they said, no, you're a resident. You're tagged out. You can't hunt for three more years. You can't back him up. And so I'm like, I'm not going to carry a rifle if I can't even shoot the thing. Yeah. And then they told me if I did shoot it, even if I did have a pistol and I was shooting, they would have confiscated the bear because it was a defensive life. So, I mean, it was just one of those situations like I didn't have a weapon because I thought a rifle, a bow and a pistol was enough. Apparently <laughs> <Really> not. <laughs> in, in all fairness, I think 90% of people out there would think that would be enough. But <laughs> Right. So, yeah, it was it, intense. You know, it's funny. Uh, there's a certain breed of person that is then willing to or that even has the desire to then go back out again. Um, Whether or not, you know, whether or not you were completely terrified to go back out, but like having that desire to put yourself in, in a situation like that again. So you, so you can, you know, so, so you will go hunt again after the, after the fact takes a a very unique breed of person. Cause I feel like most people, most, even a lot of hunters would be like, Okay, so you you wanna you wanna hunt again? Why the hell would you go out by yourself on this caribou hunt? Like, why, why? And it's and it's I feel like it's it's something that would has to kind of be hard to explain (laughs) to somebody that just doesn't feel that same way. Yeah, and I think it just comes down to I I know that I have to continually push myself to learn and grow. Right, like if we're not uncomfortable, then we're staying in the same spot and we're not progressing and we're not getting better. And I texted my husband on the inReach after that hunt. And I said, never let me bear hunt again. 
you know, in the moment I was like, screw this. I'm never bear hunting again. I'm going out with him next week. I'm going to be his backup on his hunt in the similar area. You know, <laughs> I'm, go- I'm putting myself in that situation again. Why would I do that? Because it challenges me. And if I'm not constantly facing my fears, then to me, I'm being a wuss. Like I, it's, it's me gets me. It's not anything else. It's not for likes on social media. It's not for the fame. It's I need to know that I can face my fears because if I can overcome it, then I can overcome anything. And that's just kind of how I live my life. If I'm not constantly pushing myself, then I'm not living up to my full potential. And so I will be out there five months after a bear attack, hunting bears again with my husband. Why? Cause I'm an idiot. <laughs> no. Well, and, and let's, let's face it here. When it comes, when it comes to fears and to overcoming fears, being mauled by a 10 foot plus black uh, brown bear it's kind of like one of those pinnacle ones. I feel like that is, yeah. is a very valid fear. So you overcome that. There's not a lot <laughs> I, I can honestly say in, in most people's lives that will top that. Yeah. Um, like you can't get much worse than that other than being dead. So I was going to say maybe like, I, <laughs> I don't know. I'm trying no, to think of something <laughs> like short of like being kidnapped and tortured. Like, right. I can't think of many things, many fears like, okay, what's the next thing I'm going to overcome? I'm like, no, I think you've kind of reached that mountaintop right there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was a good wake up call too. And, uh, you know, it's just, yeah, you just can't really explain it until you go through it, man. It's just, it's one of those things that it totally changes your life and your perspective. When something like that happens to you, it wakes you up. It makes you rethink everything. Um, but then along with it, it's almost like a second chance. And it's like, I'm going to use this second chance at life to do what I love and, and have no regrets. And yeah, I mean, <laughs> the moose was running at me. And I, I thought about that too. I'm like, nothing could get worse than a bear, you know, running at me. But I'm not going to lie. <laughs> that moose <laughs> running at me was a little scary. I, I kept my cool and I wasn't like terrified or shaken, but like that thing could have easily stopped me. He was coming to fight me and a couple more steps. He would have been on top of me. So, I mean, you just can't play life safe all the time. At least that's how I look at it. And so I'm sure I'll be in worse situations again, but I mean, yeah, don't get me wrong. Yeah. I'd rather have a moose charging at me than a grizzly Definitely. or a brown bear. <laughs> but I still don't want a moose charging at me. Like, yeah. <laughs> I'm just saying. Yeah. So it's all, it's all learning experiences. It's all just part of the, part of the deal of living in Bush, Alaska and hunting in Bush, Alaska. You always have stuff that goes wrong. And I've had these conversations with people. They're like, I don't want to hunt in Alaska anymore. I went out once. It was awful. It was horrifying. Um, You know, a lot of these bad things happen. I'm like, I've never had a hunt that just went perfectly and everything was fine and Danny. And it was rainbows and lollipops like it always is miserable and maybe I have something wrong with me that I like that but it's almost like I'm addicted to that challenge of misery <laughs> that Alaska brings because the success at the end of it is usually so awesome so well the yeah. the greater the stakes the greater the reward right yep that's true <laughs> so so now that now that we have sufficiently terrified anyone away from the uh the idea of hunting alaska except for a a, a handful of the completely disturbed few uh, <laughs> what uh 
you know, say, say you're talking with someone, uh, you know, maybe somebody that's never been hunting before. And, uh, you know, uh, they know you, they know you're a hunter. They know you love big game hunting. Um, and they say, you know, I've always thought this would be really cool to do. I've always been interested in hunting, but I don't know anyone that does it. I don't know where to start. Feels like there's too much to learn. I don't, I don't know if I can do this, you know, what, what words of encouragement would you give someone like that to, to put them on, on the path of hunting? Yeah. Well, I mean, first of all, and I, I get questions like this all the time. So I just try to encourage people that we all start somewhere, you know, whether you learn how to hunt when you were five or whether you learned how to hunt with when you're 25, we all start somewhere. We all have to go through the process of learning and screwing up and messing up and just getting your boots in the woods more than anything can teach you a lot about an animal can teach you a lot about their habits and their behaviors and where they eat and where they drink. And, you know, all of the, all of the behaviors that an animal has. And if you can understand the behaviors that an animal has, it just makes you a better hunter. How do you get better at anything? You practice it. And so a lot of people are kind of scared to get out there, but I always say like, just get out there, get in the woods, go for some walks, um, try to find a deer or an elk or whatever, try to find them. Look at what they do. Look at the sign. Figure out what their patterns are. If you can find a mentor that will let you walk along with them and go with them and maybe be a little packer for them, do it because you're going to learn from somebody. Um, but start small. You know, don't start off coming to Alaska and shooting a moose. Start <laughs> off with maybe a deer or um, a rabbit. I don't know, just something small to where you really get the feel for it to see if one, you really like it and you feel like you're connected to the woods that way. But two, just getting your boots on the ground, getting out there, um, learning about that animal. There's a lot of great information out there now, um, you know, online and whatever else. So, and just don't be afraid to ask people ask me, message me questions. Like I'd be so willing to kind of point you in the right direction if you need it. But um, just getting out there and learning more about the animal, I feel like it makes you a really, really good hunter. And then obviously you need to be pretty good with your weapon. So whatever weapon you choose, if it's a rifle or a bow or whatever you want to shoot with, just make sure you're really, really good with your weapon. And then just start flinging letting dying stuff that isn't dying that's my motto so if folks wanted to follow along on the crazy adventures um where can they find you online and also if you want to give a quick uh quick little promo for the podcast bristol bay fitness uh anything else you want to put out there feel free to where where people can find y'all yeah. So the main place to find me is on Instagram, Tana Sue underscore fit or just Tana Bristol Bay Fitness. I don't know. Um, there's that one. And then I also have a Bristol Bay Fitness page. And honestly, my team, we are all women that are hunters. We train a lot of men. We train a lot of women. And our goal is to help people live the life that they want outside comfortably and do it in a really just in a way that they don't get injured in a way that they feel good in a way that they can carry the weight that they want. So we train a lot of hunters, but we also train like hikers and um, just other people that want to live the life that they want out outdoors performance wise and aren't quite there yet. Like maybe they feel like they can't carry a pack yet, or maybe they've got a knee injury they're recovering from. So a lot of what our specialty is with coaching is we do nutrition and fitness and lifestyle coaching, but it's really tailored to them living the life that they want in a, in a more positive and healthy way, if that makes sense. Um, so yeah, just find me on Instagram, message me, um, 
or I guess I give you my email if they need to email me that way, but I'm mostly on Instagram. I'm not on much else other than that. Well, I will make sure to link to all of the socials on the show notes page, but thank you so much for taking the time to hop on, tell some stories. I know everyone will love, uh, love to hear this one for sure. Cool. Thanks, man. Appreciate it. All right, y'all, that'll do it for this episode of The Wild Initiative. Make sure to check out the show notes page at thewildinitiative.com. Get links to everything we talked about in today's episode. Really want to say another big thank you to Tana for hopping on and telling those two incredible stories. Um, I was, I, I still feel it all worked up just from listening to them. I can't even begin to imagine being in those moments. But y'all, that'll do it for this week. Looking forward to next time. But until then, I hope this episode inspired you to get involved, get outdoors, and plan your initiative for the wild. Thank you for listening to The Wild Initiative. Please take a moment to leave a rating and review on iTunes or Stitcher and head on over to thewildinitiative.com to get show notes, check out the blog, gear discounts, other podcasts from The Wild Initiative family, and more. Pursuing wild game in wild places. Tune in to Hunt Stand Presents Saturdays at 8.30 p.m. Eastern. Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment. You want to succeed. You want to fish. You want to be one of the greatest. Tune in to West Marine's Life on the Water, presented by Costa Custom Boats, every Saturday night from 7 to 9 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV.